very pleased to be here, Jack. Thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you to Stephanie and thank you everybody listening. Um, and thank you everybody who's been talking to your hard acts to follow. Um, in fact, so hard to follow that I, because I found, my, found myself becoming so absorbed in what you were saying, that when I combine that with my natural preference for writing, not talking, um, I've realized that I'm facing some obstacles in the next 15 minutes, but here goes. Um, as you say, Jack, my book recently published, or at least about to be published this week, is um, a memoir. Um, but in fact, it's not the first memoir that I've written. And this is where I should begin, I think, by saying that in 2006, I published a book about my childhood called uh, In the Blood, which takes the story, if story is quite the word for it, of my, from, of my life from the the age of nothing to 17, um, at, at which point in my life, my mother suffered a very serious accident, which because it was so serious, acted as a kind of bookend for that part of my, of my life. And ever since I uh, finished that book now, many years ago, I've been toying with the idea of writing a, a sequel to it and bringing uh, the story up to, up to date. Um, but I realized every time I tried to do such a thing that the procedures that had served me in the first instance probably wouldn't work very well second time round. And in particular, what I found myself thinking was that whereas I'd written the first book in the historic present so as to give a kind of freshness uh, to what I was writing about, as though in some sense my childhood was still happening to me, that method wouldn't really work for a description of adult life or a representation of adult life. The advantage I hoped with the method was that in the first book, it allowed for a kind of intimacy, as I say, but the cost of that intimacy was to deny me the room, the space in which to reflect. I, I was simply immersed in this series of moments. I didn't feel that that was an appropriate way to write about uh, my later life, not so much because I felt that I had a thesis to develop or an argument to follow. I rather didn't have any of those things, but because I thought that that kind of lack of self-awareness implied by what I've said about the first book would be something that looked approximately like deceit or avoidance in the, in the second book. So after throwing away about a hundred pages of efforts at beginning uh, this second book, Sleeping on Islands, um, considering for quite a long time whether to put it in the third person in order to give myself a kind of objective stance, um, rejecting that because it seemed too confusing and also too cold. Um, I, I plunged in, writing the book in a series of short scenes, some of which I hope approximate the, approximate the condition of prose poems, um, but some of them more... Um, narrative driven, rather like the relationship, in fact, between aria and recitative in, in opera. That was the idea roughly in my, in my mind. Um, so no historic present, just a, a retrieval of the past. And these, as I say, these short scenes. It begins more or less at the point where um, in the blood, the previous book gave, gave up, um, which is to say there's a short account of my the end of my life at home. I was brought up in what was then rural Essex. Uh, my father was a brewer. My mother was uh, didn't go out to work um, and was so often ill even before her accident that she wouldn't have found it at all easy to hold down a job, I don't think, in a permanent way. 
Um, it was a happy childhood, apart from the things that were happening to my mum. But it was also one in which there were no, or next to no books. It was simply not my parents' interest to, to read. And there was absolutely no expectation that my own life would end up having so much to do with books. Um, my father used to claim that he'd read half a book in his life. Um, and I know what it was. It was a, a so-called thriller. Um, somebody must have told him it was a thriller, but it was obviously not very thrilling to him since he only read half of it. A so-called thriller called The Lonely Skier by Hammond Innes. I remember my father bringing it on holiday um, for several years, actually, and, and patiently flicking over the pages while it rained and then gratefully throwing it aside when the rain stopped. My mother read a, a little bit more than that when she was able to. Um, I think she was a member of a book club. I remember her fishing, the, as it were, the new Iris Murdoch out of Jiffy Bags. So the... There were books around, but there, as I say, this was not a not a priority or a particular interest. They were they thought of themselves as country people doing country things, which in their case didn't in, didn't include reading. Um, in the corner of the sitting room, there was a a device which we call the whirly gig. Perhaps they really are called whirly gigs, which was a kind of rotating bookcase which had the books that some of the books um, that they didn't read as stored in it. And one of them, because I think it was a school prize of my mother's, um, was the collected poems of Rupert Brooke, um, an unfashionable figure these days and not that fashionable at the time, but I was aware of that book. And in particular, I was aware of the rather glamorous photograph taken by Shell of him not wearing a shirt with his floppy fur hair at the beginning of the book. And it gave me, when I opened it, an idea of poetry being a rather sort of glamorous uh, thing, but I left it at that really. And then at the beginning of my A-level time at school, I fell under the spell of an absolutely wonderful genius English teacher, a man called Peter Way, who walked very briskly into my mind and turned the lights on, made poems seem things which were part of life or could be part of life rather than weird additions to them, rather than simply sort of fancy ornaments. Um, at which point, the spectre of Rupert Brooke concentrated a little bit in my mind. And in my last summer holidays from school, and this is precisely the point at which this book begins, two friends and I went to look for Rupert Brooke's grave, which is on the island of Skiros um, as part of Greece. And the reason that he's buried there is that he died on the way to Gallipoli, where he would almost certainly have been killed had he not died en route. Um, and a little boat was put down from the big boat on which he was traveling. And some friends of his, in his regiment, rowed him ashore, walked the body up the dry riverbed, which they found at their point of landing and buried him in an olive grove. And um, so these two friends and I set off overland. Um, we took the train to Athens. We were, what were we, 17 years old? Took the train to Athens, took buses across to, and boats across to Skiros and then walked uh, to look for the grave, very nearly dying in the attempt, I must say, because we were so ill-prepared. Um, when we got back to school, we boastfully put on a little talk with slides of our, as we thought of it, great adventure. And to that talk came not only the English teacher that I've mentioned and want to praise, but also the recently arrived headmaster of the school, a man called Dennis Silk, um, who is really more of a games player than um, an intellectual, as I think he would have admitted him himself. Um, and as part of his 
games playing life. He'd become friendly with Siegfried Sassoon, the First World War poet, then a very old man, of course, um, because Dennis Silk was a very good cricketer and Sassoon loved cricket and they'd become friends through, through cricket. And through uh, his friendship with Sassoon, dead by this time, Dennis wondered whether I'd like to meet a friend of Sassoon's called Geoffrey Keynes, Maynard's brother, Geoffrey, then also a very old man living just outside Cambridge because Geoffrey had been a friend of Rupert Brooks at school and Dennis thought that I, it would be nice for me to go and talk to him about the condition of Brooks' grave and generally share my enthusiasm. And so I did. And because it turned out that Geoffrey lived quite near where my father was then living, it was easy for me to go and see him during the school holidays, which I began to do. And even though Geoffrey was 60 years older than me, I think, um, we became good friends. Um, and really through his kindness and his extraordinary willingness to share the treasures that were heaped up in his house, paintings, books, conversation, um, I began to feel that a door was uh, opening into the life that I, in the most sort of tentative way, was beginning to feel might be the one that I wanted to lead instead of the one that I'd been born into. Um, so when the time came to um, go to university, I thought that English is what I would study at university. Um, and I should perhaps say that nobody in my father's family anyway had been to university before, so this had a kind of a shock and novelty sense of adventure value to it, uh, for, for me at least. Um, when I got to university, I read as voraciously as I possibly could. I felt that I felt as I still feel that I had a lot to make up for um, in terms of lost time. And one of the poets that I was spending a lot of time reading then was um, the great uh, Northern Irish poet, Louis McNeese. Um, and when I discovered that Louis McNeese's long-term friend, E.R. Dodds, Eric Dodds, author of the Greeks and the Irrational, was still alive and living just outside Oxford, with the brass neck of youth, I wrote to him and asked whether I could go and see him. And a friend and I did go and see him and, and then we became friends. And through uh, Dodds, I met in the very last part of his life, W.H. Auden, who had returned to Oxford at least for some of the, the last year of his life. Um, because by that stage in his own existence, needed a, a bit of looking after. And Auden was, kind to me and we we made an arrangement he made an arrangement with me that once a week um through the fall of that year which was the year before he died I would um take new poems and show them to him and we would sit and talk about them and and so we did and I've talked a little bit about that in the in the book it seemed to me and perhaps this is a theme that emerges through the book that though I wouldn't have put it to myself like this at the time that I was somebody who needed to move quite a long way from where I was born in order to be where I wanted to get. And that having mentors um, of a kind that I could admire and follow in a more or less unqualified uh, way would, would help me uh, make that transition. Um, and Auden's kindness to me was a very important thing for me in, in a sense of giving me permission as well as being inspiring. When I finished my time at university, I stayed at Oxford for a couple of years and uh, did research on the poet Edward Thomas, who I was, was and am very keen on. 
Um, and then it was time that I got my first job and um, a job happened to come up at the University of Hull, where as many of you listening know, for the last 30 years of his life, the university librarian was Philip Larkin. Um, this was certainly a, an incentive for me to apply for a job in Hull. Though of course, Larkin did have the reputation of living very firmly as a hermit. So it never seemed very likely that we'd become friends, but against the run of play, we did. And actually, I think I have my father to thank for this, at least in the first instance, because um, Philip and I first met in the university staff bar in the days when people used to drink at lunchtime. Um, and I, we were drinking beer, and which I never saw him do again. Philip took a huge swig of beer at some early point in our rather stilted conversation. Um, and it went down the wrong way. So this person that I so looked up to, I was suddenly having to pound on the back and um, help him to get over his beer having gone down the wrong way, um, which in itself was a sort of oddly intimate way of being with him. Um, and when he recovered from his coughing and spluttering, he began to ask me about my life and said, what does your father do? And I said that my father was a brewer. Um, and I remember and will until my own dying day, Philip's eyes lighting up and him saying a brewer, as though he decided on that evidence that I came from stock, which was worth uh, bothering with um, since it produced alcohol, um, rather than having anything to do with writing, which after all, you can take or leave as you like. Um, anyway, I've worked in Hull for three years and then I went back to Oxford. I took over as editor of the Poetry Review after uh, living there for a couple of years, catching up with my writing. Um, and then I went to work for the publishers Chatto and Windus. Um, and at some point uh, in this period, Philip came to see me in Oxford and asked me to become one of his literary executors, which I di did, um, though wishing that he wouldn't die and expecting to have a very long period of not having to do any ex executive work. But as everybody knows, he died young, actually, even though he's had a rather valetudinarian manner um, in 1985. And then I set about writing his biography, encouraged to do this, in fact, asked to do this by his relic, Monica Jones, the dedicatee of his book, The Less Deceived. Um, an extraordinary opportunity for me, though, of course, since I was fond of Philip and missed him, not one that I particularly wanted to take. Um, I had written a biography of a family called Lambert up to that, but before that point, but really writing about Philip was a, a different order of things and required an, an enormous range of different ways of thinking to be brought together, philosophizing literary scholarship, um, curiosity and sympathy with as many people as I could get to see, which was pretty much everybody that he knew as far as I was aware. Um, and by the time my book came out, his reputation had changed rather, complicated a great deal from being um, the nation's sort of favorite teddy bear poet to being somebody who, because of his views, was a much more complicated figure. Um, I followed that book by writing about John Keats, and I've written a little bit about um, that in my book as well. Um, and at some point after that, in 1995, I was appointed Poet Laureate. Um, I split the job into two parts in my mind's eye. I split it into a doing part and a, a writing part. The doing part really consisted of 
setting up the poetry archive, which um, Jack was talking about. I wanted to leave a rock in the road behind me. I'd agreed to do it for 10 years and I wanted to leave a rock in the road that would outlive my tenure. Um, and the other bit was the writing bit, of course, which by, by precedent required me to write poems about events in the royal calendar, something that I've made no secret of finding very difficult to do because, well, for a, a variety of reasons, one of them being that my poems depend on having very strong feelings about the things that I'm writing about and with the best will in the world, I was suddenly required to write about people that I'd never met and in many cases never did meet. So that was a complicated part of the job. When, that, uh, when I stood down as laureate, I took on too many other things that of a sort of public nature uh, for my own peace of mind. And then the opportunity came to uh, come and teach at Johns Hopkins here in Baltimore, where I'm talking from now. Um, T.S. Eliot says in one of the four quartets that old men ought to be explorers. I was 62, I think, when I came here. Um, my wife and I simply put all our belongings in a gigantic metal container and sailed them across the Atlantic. Um, it seems in hindsight a slightly braver thing to do than it felt at the time. I think I was so excited when we first moved here by the thought of coming that um, I didn't realize how bold slash reckless a, a move it was, but I think it was one of the, in fact, I know it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Um, it's allowed me much more time for my own, own work, which I'm very glad to have. Um, and it's allowed me to stand under the great Niagara downpour of American poetry, which I hope is introducing my own writing to, to new influences, new things. Um, so I miss my friends very much. I miss my family very much, and my children and their children especially, but I'm very glad to be here. Um, and in fact, I've recently become a, um, an American citizen, a, a dual citizen with my British nationality. Um, so I can't see myself leaving here in a hurry. Um, so I suppose if I'm spared, there may be a, a, a third book in this What Happened to Me series, but for the time being, we're stuck at part two. Thank you for listening to me. <laughs>